1 Corinthians 10.1 starts off, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. And he goes on to talk about the uh, example of Israel and the very real possibility that we might fail in the same way as they failed. Now, what's the connection with the previous chapter? Well, in chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I have to keep under my body and keep it in subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. So he's saying that there is the possibility that he might fall away, that he may become a castaway. And so he says, moreover, brethren, and then the whole of chapter 10, or, or most of it, is talking about the possibility of our failure in the same way as Israel failed. And so he's drawing these parallels between us as baptized believers and Israel, who were baptized in Moses uh, like we're baptized into Christ. And he says that, um, therefore, in the same way as a large number of them who were baptized failed and became castaways, so that also could happen to us. Now, I'm not going to be unduly negative, and yet it's not a bad thing if we bear in mind the possibility of that future, that eternal future, that we might miss. Because he that endures to the end shall be saved. It's not once saved, always saved, as uh, as we know. And Paul says later on in, to the, to the uh, Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, he's not trying to sort of put the wind up us, as it were, and say, look here, there's a real possibility of rejection, so you better get a life and get a grip on yourself. But he is, I think, in a a nice and in an appropriate manner, saying, look, it's not a bad thing to occasionally just consider that there is such a thing as rejection at the last day, and there is a historical precedent in Israel that many of those who were God's people fell from grace, and shall be castaways at the last day. And he asks us to think about that in in a positive way. And that's what we're going to do partially uh, today. But first of all, uh, verse 1, All our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And the point has been made that a cloud is just water, so they had water above them, they had the water of the Red Sea on both sides of them, So they were, as it were, covered in water. They were immersed, although they managed to uh, to keep dry through the whole thing, as far as we know. So it it sort of is rather a nice kind of uh, type of baptism, water above them, water on both sides of them. It was a a literal immersion, in that sense, in in water. And So the whole type opens up, that there they were in Egypt, living a pointless life, serving idols, building pyramids for other people, living in in slavery, and God saw the pathetic nature of their life, and he gave them a way out, and it was through the Red Sea, and they went through the Red Sea, and then they didn't come immediately into the Promised Land, they had to walk through the wilderness, they were fed every day with manna, the bread, the Word of God, uh, daily in our lives, preserving us through that awful wilderness. Moses reflects in Deuteronomy what a scary, awful place it was. But let's just focus a bit on verse 1. They were under the cloud. And you might like to just underline that, under the cloud, because he's definitely quoting there from two passages in the Old Testament, which you may like to scribble down. Psalm 105, verse 39, Psalm 105, 39. 
and Numbers 14.14 14, 14, Numbers 14.14 14. and those passages say that Israel were under the cloud throughout the wilderness journey and so there is a sense in which baptism is ongoing that in the same way as they were baptized in the cloud they passed under the cloud as they came out of Egypt and went into the promised land uh, into the wilderness so in a sense that is ongoing that, that whole process of dying and then rising again of losing now in the short term what we could have and yet also receiving the, the resurrection life of Jesus bursting forth into human life this is actually ongoing what we did at baptism repeats in its essence throughout our lives and again to the Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4 uh, 10 and 11 he says we are always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body for we which live are always being delivered unto death for Jesus sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh so then death works in us but life in you and so he's saying I, I think that in a sense that resurrection life of Jesus bursts forth even now while we are still mortal into our mortal flesh and yes he does have in mind the resurrection of the body when the Lord returns but I think he's saying that in an ongoing sense this is what's happening and the the roller coaster cycle of our spiritual lives I think indicates that that we do sacrifice for Jesus we are always being asked to manifest some aspect of his death and his dying as he puts it here so that the resurrection life of Jesus might burst through into our mortal flesh and so this is the, the need and the advantage and the blessing of reflecting upon the records of the crucifixion of Jesus and it's why it's important to break bread and just put the brakes on in our lives every week or so and, and, and have a look at his death because in every uh, suffering that we have we are actually living out something that he suffered during the crucifixion let's take a, a very simple example you're being persecuted by a fly or a wasp or a bee you know sometimes they seem to hone in on you and they don't leave you alone and they just keep on and you know the, the person of the world would have the uh, temptation well, we all have a temptation but uh, would like sort of cuss the thing and keep trying to wave it away and swear at it and, and get in a pretty distracted uh, unspiritual frame of mind now I'm sure each of us has had that experience Jesus was tormented by flies you can be sure on the cross and he couldn't wave them away there was blood there was probably birds of prey swooping around he had that same experience you go through betrayal you go through rejection you go through chronic loneliness well that was Jesus particularly at the very end when John takes Mary away so in all our sufferings in this life we are to some degree living out something that was experienced by Jesus in the cross that's why what happened there was intense beyond any ability that any of us have to express it in human words because all human suffering the suffering of his people was sort of experienced in its quintessence by him in those hours in which he hung there and so we are living out 
the dying of the Lord Jesus. We are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. This is the hand of providence in our lives working to make sure that that happens. And insofar as we accept that, we as it were carry the cross, so the life also of Jesus will be made manifest even now in our mortal flesh. And I see that being uh, taught in type by the way that Israel were baptized and yet actually they continue to live Psalm 105 and Numbers 14 under the cloud and Paul says I don't want you to be ignorant of this and so he says that they came into the wilderness and they all drank <coughs> verse 4 the same spiritual drink and verse 3 they ate the same spiritual meat or food and he emphasizes the word same that this is what is common between us that we are as it were all reading from the same Bible we are all connected to the same Lord Jesus now the manna the spiritual food that he talks about is of course spoken about him by him uh, at length in John 6 and he clearly says that that manna is him personally he is the bread which as it were came down from heaven sent from God not that he parachuted down from heaven to earth there was no uh, literal pre-existence of Jesus but in the same way as the manna appeared on earth created by God and sent as it were by God from heaven so that is what happened in, in Jesus and yet he also seems to say at the end of John 6 that that manna also represents his word and so we are to feed daily on him and it's not as simple as saying therefore you should read your Bible every day that is true but we should feed upon Jesus because he ultimately is that bread and he uh, is that drink that water that followed them as he says in verse 4 that rock was Christ in the sense that it represented Christ so the only way we're going to get through the wilderness is by daily feeding upon Jesus and I would like to sound a warning here that we can be a Bible-centered community, but not a Christ-centered one. The focus should be upon Him. And yes, of course, we should read God's Word daily. There's no doubt about that. But God's Word is essentially of Jesus, because that Word, the whole Old Testament Word, was made flesh, was personalized in, in a person, the Lord Jesus. He was the embodiment of all God's Word and by that I mean all of it the chronicles, genealogies, of the historical records of the Psalms, the prophets, etc it all came together in a real, actual person so then we need to daily be thinking and reflecting upon him and one thing we could take out of our meeting today is that we should resolve that day by day we will think about him and that we will take strength from him so then, Paul seems to uh, quote, as it were, or allude to the Jewish tradition that either the rock physically followed uh, the people through the wilderness or that the stream that came out of the rock when it had been smitten followed them and they drank of it. Now, of course, the smitten rock, the rock was Christ or represented Christ. The, the struck rock represents the, the crucifixion of, of Jesus and out of him as we know from John 19 there came blood and water 
that there, there came water uh, out of his side, and it's a clear allusion uh, to that here as well. And what is that water? Well, it is the spirit. And so what do we mean by that? The spirit is such a, a, a wide word. It has such a wide range of meaning. It seems to me that the, the water, the, the spirit that comes out of Jesus uh, from his cross is particularly the spirit of Christ which we drink of. And translating that into practice, uh, there's a lot of talk about the spirit which is very airy-fairy and, and can't seem to be pinned down like, in, in concrete practical terms. What does that mean, that we are to drink of his spirit in order to get through the wilderness journey? Well, I think it means that we should be reflecting upon his death for me, the final spear thrust, and the whole spirit of life that was in him, the sort of person he was, and that is what should be our, our drink, day by day, as we go through the wilderness of this life. And slowly, his cross becomes inspirational for us. And so he, he goes on in, in verse 5 to say that with many of them, and the Greek means really the majority, with the majority of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, the idea of overthrown, I'm quoting here from the uh, King James, it, it literally means to be strewn down along the way. The idea, I think, is that their bodies were just thrown down along the journey. The majority of them died like that. And in Hebrews 3.17, you've got the same idea about the carcasses of Israel being left unburied in the wilderness. Hebrews 3.17, With whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So their bodies were just left. They fell down. Now, how did this happen? Well, I think we know how it happened, because if you look at Psalm 91, you have God there talking to Joshua, or Moses, God through Moses, talking to Joshua, and telling him that he needn't worry about all that was going on around him, because God would preserve him. Look at Psalm 91 from verse 5. You, this is Joshua, shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the plague that walks in the darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. And so, I understand from that, that as they walked through the wilderness, this was a death march, actually. This was a death march. And one by one, sometimes a thousand at a time, but other times just one by one, they were just struck down. That's how they died. A sudden plague broke out at night in the darkness, verse 6. And an, another form of destruction suddenly wasted them away at noon, noonday. And there was a terror in the night, verse 5. There was an arrow that shot in the daytime and struck these people down. And these people fell down, verse 7, at the side of Joshua, at his right hand. So this journey must have been a fearful and depressing experience with sudden death. Uh, a, a regular reality and so I think that they that the emphasis that we've seen here in 1 Corinthians 10.5 that they, they, their bodies are strewn down along the way were overthrown the AV says 
or Hebrews 3.17, that their carcasses just fell in the wilderness. I think that the language of carcass there suggests that they were not buried. The people were so frightened, frightened that, oh, here it is again. They just hurried on. And then another one fell, and another one fell. And this went on for, you know, 38 years or so. It must have been an awful situation. No wonder God had to give this message to Joshua. But don't worry, it's not going to touch you, although the people around you are collapsing. So that death march of the condemned generation is really a type of the rejection of those who have turned away, those who have said, I don't want to be in the kingdom, I want to go back to Egypt. I don't believe that you can give me this. And it's a strange uh, mixture of type that the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan is clearly presented in 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3, 4, 5 as really a type of our journey from baptism to the kingdom. And yet actually it was a death march, the death march of the condemned. And so, in a sense, we are living out our condemnation now. And there is in that thought something very relevant to the breaking of bread, because First Corinthians 11, 29-31, Paul talks about the breaking of bread service, and he says that if we would condemn ourselves, judge ourselves, the AV says, if we would condemn ourselves, we will not be condemned. So our whole life now, in one sense, is a recognition that we are sinners, and that we deserve condemnation. And that therefore, because of that, in the greatest paradox of all time, we who accept that condemnation will be saved. And God works in our lives <clears throat> to persuade us and convict us of our sin, that we are serious sinners, and that we need his forgiveness, and that we throw ourselves upon his grace. And every now and again in your life you'll find that, <clears throat> that there's a, a prod from God to make you realize your sinfulness. It can come through circumstance. Uh, through seeing your own life reflected as often happens in, in your sort of uh, <clears throat> uh, your sort of uh, opposite number you see someone else having a very similar life to yourself and that, that can do it there's all sorts of ways that God works to do this it can be straight out through reading the Bible and, and being convicted by it so then <clears throat> back to First Corinthians 10 <clears throat> he says uh, in verse 1 Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant of this In other words, he's saying I don't want you to think that there is actually uh, some sort of gap between you as baptized Christian believers and Israel who were baptized in the Red Sea And he, he says the same in Hebrews that let us therefore fear let us therefore be aware that the same could happen to us and in Romans, he argues very powerfully about Israel being, uh, as it were, the, the tree that God was not well pleased with, and that therefore the branches were broken off because they didn't bear fruit. And he reads, as Paul often does, he reads the, the psychological reaction of his readers and says, stop, stop, stop. Yeah. Don't think that you are better than them. As soon as you start to think that, well, in my church, in my ecclesia, in my life, I've known you know, lots of baptized people. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we'll all come, come out in the kingdom together. Yes, I believe and hope that by grace we will. But, don't think that we are better than natural Israel. 
Now, I don't want to keep on emphasizing this, but you've got it there in Romans, you've got it here in 1 Corinthians 10, you've got it in Hebrews. And is that not enough? We cannot say, we cannot psychologically assume subconsciously that, ah, yeah, that was them. But, ah, it's not, not for us. There is a very real possibility that the majority of those baptized in the new Israel will fail. Now, there's another side of the story. You know, God's grace is so wonderful. I was just looking at Romans 8 the other day. I, I mean, it's so powerful, it's so amazing that you just shake your head and think, wow. So that's all right then. We're all going to get saved pretty well who are in Christ, all in Christ, really will be saved. Um, and you sort of breathe a sigh of relief and think, well, thanks, Paul. Um, that's wonderful, and thank you, God, for your grace. And that, you know, that is how it is, and, and that cannot be gainsaid. And there's also some parables where you know, Jesus talks about how the, the Jews basically um, didn't keep the vineyard, and they killed the servants that were sent to them, the prophets, and above all, the Son of God who was sent. And then they were replaced by other workers, that's the Gentiles or the, the, those baptized after the time of Jesus, who would bring forth fruit. And so it's a balance, but what I'm doing, it's what Paul's doing, is saying it's a balance, but just remember that there is, if you like, a, a pretty big picture on the left-hand side here of condemnation and the, the reality of the future that we might miss and the reality of condemnation. Those who desperately want to be in the kingdom, but it's too late, you know, knocking on heaven's door, and I don't know you. Now, just for a moment, and believe me, this need only last a moment, <coughs> you think of all the people that you know have been baptized, your family, your church, ecclesia, <coughs> the people you've known. What if the majority of them, what's a majority? Call it 60%, but he probably means more than that. 80%, let's say, of those people are not going to be there. You know, dear old Uncle Bob and dear old dear old Dolly and all the rest of them. Maybe your members of your family, if they're believers, they're not going to be there. Just imagine, just for a moment, imagine there's no kingdom for them. Because... Well, maybe they were missing the obvious. Maybe, for example, Jesus is going to say, you know, you really should have fellowshiped uh, all the rest of my brethren, but instead you just stuck in your little group and you only fellowship those who you thought were right and you uh, didn't want anything to do with the rest of my people, so you didn't want a part in the body of Christ. So, um, yeah, you know, like by human standards you didn't live a bad life, but that's irrelevant because all your righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, or maybe some dear old soul... Well, you know, you're a bit proud and arrogant. You never really ever wept any tears of uh, repentance before me. You thought the problem was with the, with the others. And, uh, you know, you did your little bit of good works as you see it, but you didn't really believe in me. You didn't really know me. You read the Bible, but you never knew me. This is what Jesus says to the Jews. You search the scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, but you, you don't come to me. Just think. On the other hand, you know, Let's go to the right-hand side now, the other side of the uh, the algorithm, uh, I suppose. Uh, God's grace. You know, that all sorts of weak people whose lives were, maybe by our standards as we think, not the best, will be there. Those who misunderstood 
a lot of things about doctrine, but, you know, sort of sincerely believed and all the rest of it. Yeah, there they are in the kingdom. God was so thrilled with their response to him. But you just need to keep the other side in view because there is the possibility that you and I could fail and by keeping that in mind I think this is what inspires us with energy you collapse before God really rejoicing in his grace so thankful for his grace so confident in his mercy to you as a sinner and that's exactly where God wants you on your knees in tears of gratitude with joy, with zeal, with a fire that says, I'm yours and because of your patience with me, I want to give everything to you. That sort of fire of joy, of devotion, of praise, of zeal, of, of work for the Lord, that doesn't come unless you've been convicted of your sin. And the rightful part that we all have in condemnation from which we have been saved. But until you realize and appreciate what you have been saved from, that we have been saved from wrath in him because we're in Christ, uh, unless you, you get that, then you're not going to have a very deep praise. You're not going to have a very deep sense of gratitude, of, of, of desire to show grace and forgiveness and inclusivity. But we are in Christ, and because we are in Christ we shall be saved. Let's just keep remembering that. He, he says there that with many of them, the majority of them, he was not well pleased. Verse 5. Oddly enough, that phrase is repeatedly used in the Gospels many times, about all up about eight times. Well pleased. God says that about Jesus, that he was well pleased in Christ, set of his baptism and the transfiguration. And so the implication could be that, well, God was not well pleased with them because they were not in Christ. And yet we who are in Christ, God counts his righteousness to us. And then he goes on, I think in this context, to say, verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell 23,000 in one day. And he says that in the context of verse 7, Don't be idolaters. Fornication, I think, in the New Testament, and particularly here, is connected with idol worship. <clears throat> it doesn't mean going too far with your boyfriend or your girlfriend in, in this context. Now, that is also wrong, and I'm not justifying that, and I'm not trying to talk down the uh, seriousness and the wrongness of that. I'm not talking that down when I say this. I'm just saying that the connection here between fornication and idolatry is very strong and is repeated. And I think <clears throat> what it means is that they were uh, that, that at the uh, idol worship ceremonies in Corinth and elsewhere, this was all very much into sex, basically, sleeping with the temple prostitutes. And you, you see that right back in the Old Testament. This was going on as well, that idolatry was associated with fertility rites, sleeping with prostitutes, etc. And I think what was happening in Corinth, they were so immature that he was encountering a situation where they had turned the breaking of bread basically into a, an idol worshipping session that even included fornication remember in Revelation Jesus rebukes that woman Jezebel who taught his servants to commit fornication <clears throat> and yet despite that Paul counts them as if 
they are in Christ. He even likens them later on to Eve in Eden. He says, I fear that as the, the tempter tempted Eve, so your minds might just be tempted from the simplicity that was in Christ. So he counted the Corinthians as if they were perfect, really, and wonderful, because he recognized their status in Christ. Now, if you struggle with coping with and putting up with spiritually immature people, well, there's a great encouragement here, because Corinth were really, really weak. And, you know, he, he says here, uh, I speak as to wise men, verse 15, and... Uh, a theme you might like to follow up in Corinthians the number of times he uses that idea of as I'm talking to you as if you are people that actually you're not because they were not wise at all Um, but he speaks to them as if they are he speaks to them as if they surely will participate in the resurrection as if surely they will be in God's kingdom and really if others are in Christ we can only assume that they are brethren in Christ because you can't assume that they will be condemned because it's not for us to do that to to judge people in the sense of condemning them and so they were turning these idol worship sessions into a form of the breaking of bread and he uses a very powerful argument as to why they shouldn't do that (coughs) and he he says um, that 16 that when you break bread you are sharing in the body and blood of Christ because we being many are one loaf and one body because we're all partakers of that one loaf so then whenever you break bread you are breaking bread with all the others who are in the body of Christ so whoever is in the body of Christ you are celebrating your fellowship with them when you break bread and this is why the whole idea of saying yeah, I accept you uh, are part of the body of Christ, but because you're in a different group, or you're this or that, I'm not going to break bread with you, and you can't have my bread. You know, by doing that, we are voting ourselves outside the body of Christ. We're saying that I don't accept you as part of the body of Christ. So we're basically saying, well, I'm because they are the body of Christ, and we're saying, I don't want to be part of the body of Christ. That's what we're saying. I don't want to be part of the body of Christ. Now, this is serious is very very serious and I can only urge you whatever it costs you if it costs you your family as it costs me is it, whatever it costs you you're standing in your church or your group of ecclesias or whatever that you're, you're in with as it costs me you've got to pay that price because we cannot say to those who are members of the body of Christ I will not break bread with you by saying so we are really saying I do not accept that I want to be part of the body of Jesus. And he he says that because they were, that is what happens when we break bread, that we're part of the body of Jesus, we cannot therefore also drink the cup of the Lord, verse 21, and the cup of demons or idols. We can't partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So what he's saying is we will be... um, uniquely devoted to Christ the fact that we are breaking bread with him and we are part of his body means that we cannot be part of any other body so the whole world system around us it may be the bunch of guys at work it may be various family members you know they all got their social club and they go here and they go there and they go on holiday together and they go for a drink together and 
They do this, that and the other together and that's their life. You know, if we're part of the body of Christ, you're not part of that. It's as simple as that. And so he uses this idea of our total and exclusive devotion to Christ and to all others that are in that body. He uses that not actually because he's in this context appealing for church unity, but in the context of saying, because you are so closely connected with Jesus and with all the others that are in Jesus, you cannot be associated with any other group or body, as it were, particularly in this context, idol worship. So there's a lot of challenges here, and I'd like to just conclude with uh, verse 13, because it's just a, a wonderful verse that's so underlined, I believe, in many Bibles. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now, we tend to think that my temptations are very unique, that no one quite has been through what I've been through, so therefore I'm justified in messing up, because you don't know the pressure I was under. You don't know. But no temptation has happened to any of us, but that which has happened to other people. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you, he will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able. Now that is such a, an amazing encouragement. We never have an excuse for sin. We cannot say, the circumstance was too great. He will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. Now you could argue, reading this carefully, that actually our temptations are too great for us. They are too great. But there is a way of escape made. And the Greek seems to imply that <clears throat> each temptation has its specific way of escape. Oh, yeah, we really need to pray to God to open our eyes to perceive what that is. And the way of escape is not that the temptation disappears. It is so that we may be able to endure it. So God's not saying, I won't tempt you too much, I won't test you too much, um, I'll always just turn it off when it gets too strong. He says, no, it will be too much for you, but I'll give you a way, a way to escape, alluding no doubt to the, the way of escape that they had to clarify and, and make clear towards the cities of refuge when somebody sinned, that there is a way of escape, and that is clearly in Christ, uh, so that we might be able to endure that situation. So, no wonder, in one sense, spiritual life is so stressful, because we're, we're in, you know, out of our depth. We're in situations that are, I think, unable for us to, 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 to endure. But, there is a way of escape. So we kept just below the endurance point. And of course, where we think our endurance point is, is far different to where God does. So then, we come to the bread and wine. We come to the symbol of the fact that I am in Christ. And that that has a, an exclusive claim upon me. And that although <clears throat> condemnation is, is a real possibility, I am in him and I have no reason to think that the way is too difficult because every temptation God has prepared and the extent of his sensitive, careful working with each of us, millions of us, is amazing. Um, he has prepared for each of those temptations a specific way of escape and we can endure, and not only endure, but come for sure into God's kingdom.